Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. As always, I am so happy to connect up with my friend Eric Peters, a voice of reason in a sea of insanity. And Eric, I have been following you very closely on epautos.com. You're posting pretty much daily updates now uh, from coronavirus land, and I applaud you for this. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm doing what I think is essential for all of us to do, just ordinary people to do, which is uh, to uh, passively resist and defy these outrageous, tyrannical orders uh, that we're all supposed to cringe in our homes, under our beds, and self-imprison, not conduct business, not even go to church, not even go out to meet our friends. It's outrageous. And um, if that results in me getting hut, hut, hutted, well, so be it. You know, at some point, freedom isn't free. Uh, and people who think it is uh, are, are going to have no freedom at all very soon. You know, something kind of interesting happened last night. I talked to a friend of mine uh, who is in law enforcement, and he said the directive that he has been given is uh, don't pull people over unless it is absolutely positively necessary. And, and I'm wondering, are you hearing any rumors of anything like that in Virginia where you live? Um, I haven't heard any rumors of that, but uh, as a matter of law, uh, it's interesting to uh, discuss uh, whether they have the authority legally uh, to enforce the edict uh, that has been issued that people are are only supposed to go out if they're doing something, quote-unquote, essential. Uh, My understanding is that uh, martial law has not been declared yet, therefore state law and federal law and the Constitution are still in force meaning that they have to have probable cause. So the fact that you're out driving as such does not constitute probable cause uh, for them to pull you over. And if they do pull you over, uh, you know, you're obliged to give them your license and your registration and your insurance paperwork, but you're not obliged to answer questions in contravention of the Fifth Amendment. So don't tell them where you're going. Don't tell them anything. It's none of their business. Uh, Ask them uh, if you're free to go, uh, and that's it. Uh, And tell them you don't answer any questions and leave it up to them. Uh, of course, it's possible that you'll be arrested and dragged out of your car. But again, it's something that we have to do. You and I talked a little bit before we went on the air about uh, the protest movement of the 60s. And, uh, you know, conservatives often make fun of the left and, and liberals. But I have to admit that back in those days, people who were opposed to the Vietnam War had the guts to go out and uh, protest peacefully and even to confront armed National Guard troops uh, when it came down to it. There's the iconic. Uh, a photo of the the hippie girl putting the flower in the gun barrel of the National Guardsman, and and they didn't shoot. And, you know, if we want to avoid shooting, that's what we have to do. We have to just put them in the awkward position of having to use force against Americans for going out to the store and going out to see their friends. I mean, it's hallucinatory, but that's what we have got to do now while we can still do that. Yeah, it's you know, I've had this conversation with a number of different people and and I think we're all in our own way trying to find that sweet spot of where can I do this uh, you know, nonviolent resistance but nonetheless assert that look, these rights are not negotiable and they don't go away when someone waves a magic wand and says the word emergency. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I just finished posting an article on the site uh, uh, that was that was titled "Without Without Marching on Rome Even," and the references to Mussolini's famous march on Rome, or at least Mussolini did march on Rome and seized power. We've simply given it to these people on the basis of this bug. All of a sudden, we're living in a de facto martial law situation where these governors now have become Mussolini and just issue decrees. 
with no authority uh, that I can t- I can discern, certainly no legitimate authority. That is authority that that uh, emanates from the people who've consented to this. Uh, I mean, they've they've uh, they, there's no limit anymore apparently on what they can do, and if they can tell us that we can't go out of our homes. Uh, we can't transact business. What's to tell? What's to prevent them from sending armed government workers to our house just for safety to check in, to kick open the doors and look around and see if we're complying with all their orders? The fact is, they're already doing that. In in one of the uh, the neighboring states of New York City, the, the National Guard is apparently going around door to door. Uh, demanding to enter people's homes to look and see if anybody is there who shouldn't be there who's who's from New York. Man, it's this is getting real in a lot of ways that I really wish it weren't. Uh, my son is a security guard, and this morning when I went to pick him up from work, um, he said, Dad, I've got this letter that you're going to need to keep on you at all times if, if we're traveling, just in case. And, and it's not being enforced like this where I am in Utah. You know, we're not getting pulled over just for being out. But he, his yeah. work has now issued him an exemption letter that uh, if we yeah. are pulled over, that's our get-out-of-jail-free card, that we are about official business and essential jobs and all that. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just marveling that, that it's come to this and, 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 and kind of halfway wondering, where does it go from here? You know, well, I think also that, that that's theater. I don't think that it would stand unless we do have actual overt martial law in this country. Uh, the idea that you have to carry around this piece of paper as a permission slip. They don't have the authority. Now, you may get arrested, but ultimately, unless we do descend into an outright police state and darkness uh, envelops the land and we no longer have due process, which is possible – uh, when this does become, um, when this be- goes before courts, it's going to get thrown out. They can't do this. It's not lawful. We well, decide moral. Like, like you were pointing out, there, were, there was a time when people who were serious about asserting their rights or even just asserting their point of view were willing to risk being arrested, willing to have their good name dragged through the mud, as it were, yep. because that mattered to them more than simply, you know, going along to get along. Well, as speaking of good names, I think it's incumbent upon us all now to defend our good names uh, as stand-up people, as free men and women, uh, by not cowering and cringing and accepting every degrading humiliation that's being imposed upon us uh, on the basis of this, this bug. And that's what we're talking about. It's a bug. You know, it's something that's killed a few thousand people. Well, how many, 20, 30,000 people got killed by the flu last year, according to the CDC? A lot of people. And I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying that reasonable precautions would be uh, to urge those over, say, 60 or 65 or whatever the the threshold is. Those people certainly should be encouraged, not forced, but encouraged if they they want to reduce their risk to self-sequester, to stay home. And uh, younger people should be encouraged to avoid coming into contact with the older people or people who have underlying problems, whatever those problems might be, that make them susceptible. All of that is entirely reasonable. What's tyrannical and outrageous and unreasonable is to imprison an entire population of people and take away every last remaining shred that they have of rights. Even in Soviet Russia under Stalin, people could go out and walk around on the streets. Can you imagine? That's what we've been reduced to. We're not even allowed to go outside anymore, and you could still go outside in Stalin's Russia and and in Hitler's Germany. Well, I I shared your uh, column about uh, Pavlik uh, Morozov with my listeners yesterday, and that's a name that more people should know because we're starting to see people turn into Pavlik Morozov. For those who don't know who he was... What was the story behind him? Yeah, in in Stalin's Russia, 
uh, when they uh, they attempted, well, they did, they succeeded uh, in enslaving the entire population, and in particular what were styled kulaks, which were the middle-class farmers, peasants, uh, who had a little bit of land and maybe had a cow or two, and herding them into these collectivized farms and forcing them to hand over everything that they owned, including every last little bag of grain, even though they were starving, literally starving to death. Uh, well, it had become such a virtue in Soviet Russia to worship communism, worship the collective, worship uh, whatever the Soviet government, that is Stalin, decreed, uh, that psychoticized people, including children, who had been reared in this environment where they'd been taught that this is what's good, this is the good good thing to do, is to is to protect the, the Soviet motherland against the, the class enemies, including parents. So this, there was a boy named uh, Pavel Morozov. I think he was 13 years old, and he sicked the uh, the Soviet armed government workers on his own parents uh, for defying uh, Stalin's orders about hoarding grain, as he styled it. And his own parents uh, were taken away to the camps, and I think that they were killed as a result of this. And the kid was made into a child hero of the Soviet Union. And statues were erected to this kid all over the country, and people were expected to take their caps off and, uh, and, and show deference to, to this wonderful child who had his parents murdered by the Soviet government. Yeah, and and I see that tendency coming out in a lot of people um, who, for whatever reason, I don't know if they get a contact high off, you know, authority or what, but man, they just can't stand the idea that some people may be out and about while they are, you know, sheltering in place at home. Well, it's the perversion of the good human instinct to want to be good, right? We all want to do the right thing. We all want to be seen as decent people, right? That's almost an instinctive thing in, in human beings, I think. Uh, but if you get to define what's good, you can pervert it. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the famous Soviet dissident, wrote about this and, and how devilish it was to convince people that it was good uh, to obey the Soviet state and to esteem above all else uh, the proletariat and the working class embodied in the will of Stalin. Uh, that became the good, and that zeal justified the most horrific, awful things. Most people are not sadists. Most people are not psychopaths, but they can be convinced to do sadistic and psychopathic things with glee, with lust, if they think they're doing a good thing. And that's the horror show that awaits us if we go down this road. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. If you have not uh, subscribed, if you haven't uh, visited his site on a regular basis, you'll find that he has a number of thought-provoking columns. He also writes about a lot of cool automotive stuff, too. But uh, Eric is also doing daily updates from uh, Corona Land and, and uh, what it's like being out and about in, in a state that's on lockdown. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, uh, there, <laughs> it's such a target-rich environment. It's, it's hard to, to narrow down uh, what exactly to pinpoint next. I noticed you had a great article about uh, the virus of tyranny and talking about the economic uh, fallout and some of the economic repercussions that we're facing. Uh, give me your thoughts on the idea that, uh, hey, we need, to, we need to shut down commerce or we need to close down, you know, uh, basically all the businesses or as many as possible. 
Where do you see that leading us, especially since the goalposts appear to be moving further and further out into the future as to when they can safely reopen? Well, safely reopen. We're talking about mass economic collapse here, and particularly of uh, small businesses, uh, individual proprietors who cannot withstand uh, being uh, inert financially for a month even, let alone two months. It will be the end of them. Uh, now, the government promises that, well, we'll just give you uh, loans and bailouts uh, to prop you back up once all of this is over. Of course, everything comes with strings attached. And what they'll probably do then is enact some of their stealth agenda that they've wanted to enact for some time by simply saying, well, if you take this money, then you have to do X, Y, and Z. For example, you have to uh, uh, abide by the various Green New Deal aspects. That's one way they may get the Green New Deal imposed on people or uh, any other shibboleth that you can imagine. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, and I, I put a little post about this the other day that I noticed, uh, I noticed something in my travels about, is that these large corporate businesses are not being hut-hut-hutted, in my area at least, for having more than 10 people there. Uh, I don't want to mention any of the, the, the stores by name because I like the people are still transacting business to some extent and the people are still able to go shopping to some extent. But to, to contrast it, I went to a local small nursery run by uh, a couple and they were effectively shut down. Nominally, they were open, but there was this kind of bucket thing in front saying that if you need something, park your car here, we'll come out to you. Nobody milling around. Well, then uh, I and my girlfriend went down the road and we went to a big box store. It has a nursery center. And there were probably 30 or 40 people walking around getting plants and looking at things. No problem. So I don't know whether this is deliberate, but it seems to me that this whole corona thing is benefiting these big corporations, which are, are not only weathering the storm, they're profiting from it because no, no small business can transact business right now. So everybody's forced to do business with these big corporations, uh, who, of course, will get the massive bailouts, whereas the private individuals won't. And when this is all over, these private businesses and private proprietors that have gone out of business, their businesses will be for sale for pennies on the dollar. And guess who's going to snap them all up? Yeah. Well, hey, you know, membership has its privileges, and most yeah. of those big corporations are either in bed with big government or their lobbyists are in bed. Um, you know, you there's a line from your article about the virus of tyranny that really jumped out at me, and that was how everybody has a plan for dealing with coronavirus. And you ask the question, how about a principle? And let's let's talk about yeah. the principles that are that are at stake here. Well, sure. You know, this idea, and it's everywhere. It's not just corona. It predates corona. You always hear politicians talking about whatever plan they have for us. How about the principle of leaving people to plan their own lives according to their own lights? That's what's at stake here. Uh, instead of constantly being pulled and tugged left, right by people with plans, uh, what happened to that idea that you were the captain of your ship as a free person, uh, that you could pursue happiness in that felicitous phrase of Thomas Jefferson, uh, as you saw it? Assume risks uh, yourself. You know, in this middle of this corona thing, uh, you know, I'm I'm perfectly willing to risk the coronavirus because my freedom is more important to me. And if I ran a small coffee shop, for example, and I wanted to open my coffee shop, nobody's being forced to go to the coffee shop. If you're not comfortable with the risk of of corona or whatever, don't go to the coffee shop. Stay home. That's you know that's the sort of thing that I'd like to see. I'd like to see people being able to exercise their free choice again instead of being subject to these one-size-fits-all plans by our little Mussolini overlords. 
Well, and you use a very good example that I think most people could relate to, and that is uh, none of us has the right to force anybody to drink broccoli smoothies, nor do we have right. the right to force them to stop eating cheeseburgers. And, and the, the same principle expanded to uh, what you've just described, you know, whether or not to keep their business open or not, should apply across the board. But for some reason, I guess the sure. fear uh, has, has turned us into essentially human cattle. Yeah, and it's this idea that everything has to be one size down, uh, one size fits all to the least common denominator. Are we going to get to the point where you can't have a swimming pool that, that has uh, more than three feet of water in it because some people can't swim? Right, right. You know, well, it's, it's the, do you remember the, the short story, um, Harrison Bergeron? I do. For the sake of those who haven't heard of it, though, um, go ahead and expound on that for us. Yeah, it's a short story in which uh, it's a dystopian idea of of a future society in which anybody who is physically able is crippled so that uh, nobody can run faster uh, than anybody else. If you can see, if you have two good eyes, one of your eyes uh, gets plucked out. Uh, If you're smart, uh, you're hobbled in one way or another. The story is by Kurt, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who's one of my favorite writers. Uh, and his, print, his idea was that you know, this, 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 this tyranny of equality, that we all have to be the same, is un, it's unfair for anybody uh, to be better than anyone else or more capable than anybody else. So now, you know, applied to this corona thing, because some people have gotten sick and some people are more vulnerable to it than, uh, than others, all of us have to be presumed to be on the verge of imminent death from corona and denied even our opportunity to choose for ourselves whether we wish to risk death. And that is itself, in my opinion, even worse than death, to have your life taken away from you, your life choices, your ability to live your own life on the basis of some other random person that you don't even know who's got an army of men with, uh, with guns who is going to tell you what to do for your own good. I don't like that. No, it's it, it's essential that uh, we not only understand this is what's really at risk. It's not just a matter of, oh, you might get sick if you go out. It's how much can you allow government to assume um, unaccountable power and, and still expect to live as a free human being? And, and I think we unfortunately yep. know the answer to that question. Yeah, we know it in real life now, don't we? I mean, we're re- it's not an exaggeration any longer. The, the, most, the most paranoid rantings of the most fringe people have become our everyday reality. We're locked down as a country. As a country, we were not allowed to go outside of our houses anymore, or so we're told. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, what, it's, it's, it's literally unimaginable. Sometimes I struggle to even find the words to articulate it to try to Uh, convince myself that I'm not caught in some kind of a bad nightmare and I'm going to wake up and this will all have been just that, a bad dream. Well, and one of the questions that you ask as well that I wish more people would ask is where do those in authority get the right to force us? Who gave them that authority? Exactly right. Exactly right. Nobody seems to want to ask these questions anymore. At least many people don't. And I think that that's uh, not accidental. I think that the, the government school system encourages passivity and reflexive obedience to authority without questioning it. You know, people don't raise their hands anymore and say, well, well, well wait a minute. I'm not sure about that. That doesn't sound right to me. I'd, I'd like to know why. And I, I think I have a different point of view. People are terrified of, of, of it making that kind of a uh, of expressing those sentiments any longer. Okay, so let's let's talk some solutions. We've got about 90 seconds left before we hit the end of the segment here. But um, what do you recommend people do in terms of feeding their understanding, in terms of, you know, girding their loins, so to speak? Um, where would you point them to, to find the insight and the courage to, to make that stand for their personal freedoms? Well, they just have to be willing to stand up against things that are 
are over the top and tyrannical. Again, I reiterate, if you're afraid of coronavirus, well, stay home. But if you're not afraid of it, uh, and, if, and if you want to go out and live your life, then I think you should go out and live your life. Go for a walk. Uh, go, you know, if you can still find a, a place that serves food, go get food. Sit outside. Make a point of not cowing in submission to all of this. And also, uh, question it among your friends and family. Talk about it and give heart to other people who may secretly uh, think as you and I do, but are f- afraid of saying anything uh, for, for being ostracized, for uh, being horrible people, for wanting everybody to die from coronavirus, which is just absurd. Eric, I appreciate your efforts. I appreciate your video updates as well. And again, I want to steer my listeners. If you haven't checked out epautos.com, you really should. Eric uh, keeps you very informed. And, and frankly, it's kind of entertaining, too. And if they're into car stuff, you've got a lot of car stuff as well. Thanks, Brian. We try to keep our sense of humor, even in the midst of some very, very awful times. Well, I, this is going to be stuff for the history books. And I'm just I'm grateful for people like yourself who speak up and and. Uh, adhere to the principles that we need to. Thanks again, Eric Peters. We'll talk to you soon. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde at your service. Please hold your calls until the next hour of the show. We'll open up the phones at that time. Uh, Paul Rosenberg has become one of my go-to people when it comes to just getting a good, clear, uh, principled perspective on the world around us. Now, this is not to say that, therefore, he is a guru and every word he speaks should be written in stone. Paul himself would say, no, 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 don't do that. (laughs) You need to think for yourself. But he does have a really solid take, and I think it, it comes from being very well-read. I think he has, uh, I think his heart is absolutely in the right place, meaning he has a very clearly defined sense of right and wrong. His principles are, are well-defined, and he does such a good job of just laying out the case for why we ought not just go with the flow or just embrace the conventional wisdom like, uh, like we're told to do. He's, he's very much a champion of personal freedom. And, and this essay of his, the social contract is a fraud. Anyone trying to enforce it is acting criminally, is a really good example of, of helping cut through some of the smoke and the mirrors and the, uh, the myths that most of us have bought into for, for pretty much all of our adult lives. Listen to this. Paul Rosenberg says, when you hear the word social, it's even money that you're being snookered. Social justice, for example, is primarily a ruse for penalizing individuals without finding without any finding of fact, rather, as to their individual guilt. So whether you actually did something deserving of penalty is irrelevant. It's social. And if you question the deal, well, you're a bad person. But he says the granddaddy of all social scams, however, is the social contract. That's what replaced the divine right of kings in the 17th and 18th centuries when it was falling apart. This is, in Wikipedia's slightly edited words, a theory or model that addresses the questions of the origin of society and the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. In other words, this was the new explanation of why it's right for one group of men to rule over other men. Now, Wikipedia continues, 
Arguments typically posit that individuals have consented, either explicitly or tacitly, to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the ruler in exchange for protection of their remaining rights. So Paul Rosenberg says a group of rulers gets to ignore our rights, take away our money continually, punish us when it wishes, and even send us off to war. And that's all okay because we somehow agreed to the deal. It's a contract, after all. Except it's not. Now, this is where it gets interesting. He says, if an adult wants to sign away his rights and make himself a serf to politicians, that's his choice, and I won't take it from him. But for the, be- for the deal to be a legit, clear agreement and authorizations on both sides are required for it to be a legitimate contract. Now, this is, again, per Wikipedia, a contract is an agreement having a lawful object entered into voluntarily by two or more parties, each of whom intends to create one or more legal obligations between them. The elements of a contract are offer and acceptance by competent persons having legal capacity who exchange consideration to create mutuality of obligation. Now, I know that's a lot of legalese, but you get the gist, right? The social contract fails this standard in multiple ways. In fact, it's, it's not a contract in any rational sense of the term. And if it's not a contract, then the use of that word is fraudulent. Fraud is defined as a false representation with the intent of persuading the victim to part with property. And Paul Rosenberg says that is precisely what's being done with the social contract and on a gigantic scale. We have a supposed contract and we have trillions of dollars changing hands based upon its legitimacy. If, in fact, it is not a contract, then the entirety of the arrangement is a massive criminal fraud. So is this the social is this uh, social contract legitimate? Well, he says, let's examine some crucial aspects of contracts. Competence. In order to agree to a contract, one must be competent. You cannot, for example, make a contract with a hungry five-year-old trading a few candy bars for a third of the child's lifetime earnings. The child is not competent, and any such agreement is rightly considered invalid. The social contract, however, is held to be binding upon us from birth. How is that possible? Can an infant do what a five-year-old or even a 12-year-old cannot? Verdict, the social contract fails. Then there's voluntary agreement. A contract must be agreed to. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I was never given a choice to sign or reject such an agreement, and I doubt you were either. There can be no contract at all without a voluntary agreement. Verdict, the social contract fails. It must also be without duress. A contract must be agreed to without duress, that is, without any threat of harm. The standard objection to the agreement point that he made earlier is that people say that, well, you agree to the social contract by your actions. Now, if you use anything provided by a government, well, then you automatically agree to the entire social contract. But he says this line of argument fails in several ways. Entrapment, for starters, followed by being informed. But he says the largest issue in my mind is that of duress. To get out of the social contract, we're told we must leave the ruler's territory. So that places the ruler's rights above our own as a starting point, which voids any semblance of equal justice. But he says, I'll pass that up for discussion today. Leaving the ruler's territory means spending large amounts of money, 
a tremendous amount of time to make arrangements, leaving our jobs behind, leaving all of our friends behind, and leaving our entire families behind. In other words, we can only escape the social contract by undertaking difficult, expensive, and heartbreaking actions. So imagine a fuller brush salesman coming to your door and offering you an assortment of brushes for $30. Then when you politely decline, he pulls out a gun and says, no, if you don't want the deal, you have to abandon your house. Either pay me or leave. Now, is the salesman's demand criminal? If so, then the social contract is criminal as well. Both seek to secure arrangements by using duress. Verdict, the social contract fails both on legally and both legally and on grounds of cruelty. Then there's the matter of undue influence. Undue influence involves one person taking advantage of a position of power over another person. Now, clearly, this applies to the social contract. First, we're compelled to attend schools run by the other party to the contract. These institutions teach us that the social contract is the way of the world and that any competing ideas would be crazy. And we're held in their classrooms five or more hours per day starting at five years old and running until adulthood. And Paul Rosenberg says, consider, if nothing else, the daily pledge of allegiance and try to count the number of times that you were made to recite it. On top of that, the other party employs legions of armed men and authorizes them to violently subdue those who oppose them and their rules. Now, if those things aren't undue influence, then nothing is. You can't indoctrinate the other party, hold a sword to his throat, force him to sign and still call it a contract. Verdict, the social contract fails. Then there's mutuality of obligation. He says, with no mutuality of obligation, there can be no contract. If the other side of the contract is not meeting their obligations, there must be recourse. Well, after the U.S. government failed to protect New Yorkers on 9-11, all 8 million of them should have been entitled to a refund. Clearly, the other side of the deal failed to meet their obligation. Now, that, of course, didn't happen. The loss of their rights only got worse. And then we have the doctrine of sovereign immunity, which removes all the most serious consequences from the other side of the deal. There is no mutuality of obligation in the social contract. Therefore, it's not a contract. Verdict, the social contract fails. Now, he says, I could go on, but I think my point is made. I've cited five clear violations of contract law and alluded to several others. If even one of these is valid, the social contract is invalid. If the terms of a contract are uncertain or incomplete, it's no contract at all. And for one party to continue to seize the goods of another, claiming a contractual right to do so is criminal fraud. So what is the real purpose of the contract? As with the divine right of kings that preceded it, the hidden and essential aspect of the social contract is to give subjects a reason to submit. The obvious reason for the subject to submit is that rulers employ thousands of armed men who are authorized and prepared to punish disobedience. This, however, isn't enough for effective rulership. Policemen in jails are expensive, and many, many more than our current number would be required if fear was the sole reason for obedience. No, for governance to work, the subjects must believe that obeying is the right thing to do. And that's where the social contract comes in. It gives people a reason to believe and a reason to obey beyond a mere threat. It saves them from having to face fear or even to consciously submit. Strange as it may sound, he says an effective ruler must equip, must equip his or her subjects to obey. It's a fundamental factor in rulership. And that's the true purpose of the social contract. So, by any legal standard, he says, the social contract fails. Now, that won't cause any rulers to change, of course, but the truth still matters to some of us. And as per our discussion with Eric Peters, you know, every one of us, whether we like it or not, 
is standing at a crossroads of sorts right now. Look, I don't want to be standing here any more than you do. But here we are. And the choice that's before us is, do we consciously submit to tyranny? Do we make a principled stand in whatever way is most appropriate? And I can't answer for you what is the most appropriate way. I'm just telling you, the choice is, will you stand or will you kneel? I wish you all the best in making that choice. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I hope you find this program a source of truth and light, not because I have all the answers, but simply because I have access to so many wonderful resources. And and there are a lot of folks out there who I think really have a solid take worth considering. Even if you don't uh, you know, consider their words to be gospel, you have a lot of things to consider. Um, with all the information coming at us right now, particularly about coronavirus, it's a little bit overwhelming. And, you know, as much as I want to play, as much as I may sound like Mr. Cool Cucumber here, yeah, I'm on top of it all. Ain't no thing. I got to admit, I, I'm taking inventory of myself day to day and, and I'm feeling it. I feel a little bit frayed around the edges. And part of it's just the information overload. Part of it is the, the stress and the uncertainty of, OK, you know, what is going to come of this? How far down the rabbit hole can we go? I don't know the answer. I'm not sure that I want to know the answer, but I know this. There are some things that we do need to think about. There are some things we should give priority to, and and fear is not the top of that list. Fear is not the, the main thing that we should be focusing on. Justin Pavoni, writing for the Ron Paul Institute, has a wonderful article here called 10 Things to Think About Concerning Coronavirus. And I think these are some pretty solid things. You can do with them as you wish. I'm not saying you have to believe them, but I thought they were worth sharing. Number one, he says, all of this, referring to coronavirus, can be solved by following the voluntary principle. If you are worried, then stay home. If you're willing to assume the risk, then go to work. Now, going to work means you may interact with other people and thus get sick. It's a risk. The other people at work took on this risk of their own choosing, too. Life is full of risks. Not going to work has its own obvious risks associated with it. Let people choose their own paths based on their own risk tolerance and voluntary choices. Don't impose your view via government force on those of us that peacefully disagree with you. Number two, there have been 23,000 U.S. deaths so far this year due to flu. 3,000 from coronavirus. Worldwide stats are roughly in parallel. Legitimate population samples and common sense show that the virus has infected way more people than is reported by the immoral news organizations that make money off this hysteria. Now, it's likely that the real death rates are closer to 0.05% rather than the off-emphasized 3%. Number three, social distancing makes people distrust one another. And by the way, just as a quick aside... I have been to the grocery store a couple of times in the last week, and you can see it. You can see the nervousness in people's eyes. If you start to come just a step too close, there's the, <gasps> back away. <laughs> I hate it, but there it is. He says, people are afraid of each other, are easier to control. 
Now, in this case, uh, Justin Pavoni says we had a house fire. And he says uh, that uh, while nobody will shake my hand because they're afraid of death of by coronavirus, they'll happily walk around in the burned down home without a respirator. Now, of course, the burned down house is more likely to be an immediate and serious health threat. Anybody else see a problem here? Number four, he says, I've already seen certain local governments posting websites for all of us to tell on each other for congregating in groups. He says, my wife has had skeptical posts removed from Facebook. Sounds a lot like the secret police to me. Number five, will they soon be forcibly vaccinating my whole family, even though there's a huge chance I'm naturally immune to this virus already? What if I don't want the vaccine? What if I would rather develop a natural immunity? Am I going to be targeted modern day witch hunt as a bioterrorist germ spreader if I want to be if I want to contract the cold and let my body beat it on its own? Of course, since vaccines have all kinds of toxins in them and since they'll also get rushed to market in the hysteria, he says there's a huge likelihood making me take the vaccine would do more harm than good. Is anyone going to be held responsible for that if it were to happen? Number six. Everyone's job is essential to their own ability to put food on their table. He says, I'm tired of people telling my wife and I that her work as a realtor isn't essential. He says, tell that to my kids. The government does not have a right to make it illegal to work and then pretend to solve the problem by printing money it does not have. Of course, printing money only steals the purchasing power of what little savings people do have in the bank to cover themselves during this absurd moment in time. How about just getting out of the way? Number seven, the First Amendment to the Constitution is supposed to guarantee the right of Americans to peacefully assemble with their fellow man. That is to peacefully protest as a group. What happens when I get together with 10 or more people to protest this insane coronavirus lockdown that does nothing to stop the spread of a disease? The government is likely six months behind. Well, you know what the answer is, right? He says, I would likely spend six months in jail. And everyone would tell me I'm trying to kill their grandparents. Insane. There is no provision in the Constitution that allows for this fundamental human right to assemble to be ignored during the coronavirus or at any other time. Therefore, like most things the U.S. government does, this is fundamentally illegal nonsense. Number eight, the government has no money. It has to steal everything it gets. And since it's in the red, it has to print the two trillion out of thin air. The one honest guy in the House of Representatives, Thomas Massey, called this huge a huge wealth transfer from the masses to the rich with $1,200 as the cheese in the trap. And he's exactly right. He is, of course, getting slaughtered in the press for trying to force other representatives to at least put their names on the vote. Of course, the insane bipartisan consensus of stupidity is slaughtering him for having enough integrity to ask for accountability. They just say he's trying to make us all sick by coming back to D.C. to vote again. Insane. And the Federal Reserve, the small group of economics PhDs who have the monopoly privilege to counterfeit money and falsely believe that they can model human action as an equilibrium equation, just said they would backstop all debt. So here we go again, only this time it's worse. Now the Fed has established three new lending facilities to buy corporate bonds. So first they print the money to keep prices from falling in 08 to a level where private citizens could afford houses. Then they bought up all the mortgages so the Fed really owns all the homes in America. Now they're printing up more money to buy all the big companies. 
So soon the Fed will own all the businesses because who can compete with a printing press? Who needs a communist revolution when you have central banking? Welcome to 1984 in the central banking states of America. Wow, I've never heard it described that way, but that is, that's a pretty solid way of looking at it. Oh, and last but not least, both the Chinese and American politicians seem intent to blame each other for the virus. So maybe they'll top it all off with a cherry on top. Another war, anyone? Give it a few years, he says. I'm sure it's coming. After all, Hitler took over when when the Weimar Republic printed its currency into oblivion. And he says, I don't remember that working out too well. People need to start pushing back against this insanity. Now, again, this is uh, this is from Justin Pavoni from the Ron Paul Institute. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. <sighs> again, I'm not saying that, th- that this is spelling out. This is what you should do. But the points he makes, I believe, are founded in principle. And not just, well, if you believe this, it gives me or my party, you know, the partisan advantage. Can you see that we are far beyond considerations of partisanship? Or at least we should be at this point. I mean, to be fair, I know people who are still, well, how is this going to affect the presidential election? Is this going to harm Trump's chances for re-election? And I guess, you know, I suppose, you know, if, if that's where your heart is or that's where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also... But I think we have reached the point where a political solution is only making things worse. And to to paraphrase my good friend Joe Carey, the most important thing that any one of us can do at this point in time, number one, get right with God. I realize not everybody believes in God, so if you believe in the universe, if you believe in some kind of higher power, get right with that power. And secondly, be kind. It's, it's so interesting how um, something that, that we noticed uh, in the first few days of this crisis, when it first became clear that, whoa, something is changing here. We can feel the earth shifting under our feet. For those of us here along the Wasatch Front, literally, we could feel it shifting under our feet. Did you notice how some people uh, switched into me and mine mode? I mean, they got panicky. They got fearful. They were grabbing everything they could. Grab all the toilet paper. Grab all the milk. Grab all the hand sanitizer. Very, very, uh, you know, scarcity-minded. And, of course, you know, there were fist fights <laughs> breaking out. Even, even in peaceful, happy Valley, Utah, where I live, the police had to be called to break up fist fights because people were fighting over what they perceived as a scarce commodity. I must have this. Folks, we are not even suffering. I would guess few of us have missed a meal. And this is how we're going to behave? How do you suppose people with that mindset would behave if they had missed several meals in a row? So that admonition to be kind, it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, just, hey, you know, put flowers in everyone's hands. It's about what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person who would serve and help your fellow man? Or basically, uh, you know, look for an excuse to take from them what you could just because you have to. 